The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 383 Premium for Thursday, February 23rd, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips. We do our darndest to answer your questions, share our own tips, and all together, we try to learn something new each time. Each time. For here, from Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave, Ham- Dave Hamilton, <laughs> apparently with uh, a new set of lips today. <laughs> and here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Uh, did you put that like in an echo chamber? What filter did you put the uh, theme through? Oh, actually, that was a, a listener did that completely on their own and, uh, and sent that oh. in. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. It's different. It's different. There you go. Took me by surprise. I thought we were having Skype issues. Oh, uh, well, we were. You just didn't know it because yeah. the theme was different, so you couldn't tell. So, um, you know what? Let's dive right in. We got, uh, we've got some great tips. Uh, we always have some great tips, but, uh, but especially so today, I feel. And, and this first one, man, I feel so dumb because it's something that has existed in the OS for a really long time. And I never knew about it until Scout sent his email in uh, today. And the email says, sometimes I reply to a message when I mean to reply all. Sometimes I reply all when I mean to reply to just the sender. Mostly I choose the wrong one because I use the keyboard shortcuts of command R or command shift R. When I choose the wrong one, I have to close the reply window and start over. Today, my fingers were flying so fast that I used the other keyboard shortcut before closing the wrongly addressed message window and was amazed to see that Apple Mail hot swapped the addresses right in the same reply window. Sure enough, choosing either reply or reply all from the keyboard or the menu commands resulted in mail toggling between just the sender's address and all of the recipient's addresses being in the message. Dude. This is huge for me. I don't know. How, I don't know about you, you folks out there, but for me, I do this all the time. I'll start replying and then realize, oh, I meant to reply all. And I close the thing and I do reply all and I start typing again. And you don't have to. I even tried it just now. It works in Snow Leopard and in Lion. You just start typing and, and you can you can toggle back and forth as many times as you want until you click send and you don't lose anything in your message. It just repopulates the, um, the two in CC fields uh, appropriately. So. Awesome stuff. Man, I so wish I'd known that a long time ago. But now we all know it. I think reply all should be illegal. What? <laughs> what the only about? reason I, uh, No, the only reason I say that is uh, you may not have run into this, but I ran into this more than once uh, on enterprise email systems, especially when they, they use a, uh, what I'll say is like a macro. Okay. Like all employees. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. I saw this once and what happens is they give people the ability to reply to all employees no, that's and, and it snowballs into, you know, that people start typing unsubscribe and <laughs> please stop sending. And the problem is people keep replying, not realizing that they're replying to everybody in the company. And, and it's hilarious. I've seen that happen a couple of times. I think they eventually figured how to, they got rid of these macros because they caused more or, you know, batch or whatever you want to call it. Mailing lists. Sure. Because it, it just caused grief. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think reply all is fantastic. It's excellent for, for email trails and all that good stuff. As long as you're careful. Oh yeah. So as, as long as you use uh, improperly, if you're doing it intentionally, then it's great. Improperly. Yeah. Is that a word? I mean, yeah. a word. it is. Okay. It is. And, Next. uh, and Mark wrote in, Mark said, uh, well, I was listening back to Mac geek 381, but the guy that wants to regularly connect it to his server using Apple script, uh, I thought of a different way to do it. He says, uh, what I do is something similar using keyboard maestro and I write a macro which uses the time as a trigger and will run an Apple script daily at a certain time. You can duplicate the macro and change the time. The time triggers are good for other things as well. And he's right. You know, keyboard maestro, you think keyboard, uh, but uh, but certainly it is totally possible to do timed based uh, or time based triggers for all of this stuff. And uh and and so there you go. Yet yet another option uh, if you don't want to have to edit the the Mac OS cron uh, scripts and all of that to get your stuff to run. That's how you can do it. So 
Thank you, Mark. Good stuff. Poor man's cron. Well, actually, not poor man's because you got to buy a keyboard maestro, but a little more, <laughs> little, little, a little better GUI to, to control it, I guess. And up next. Yes, sir. Because I, I see a special symbol here that means I get to read this. So we got something from Bill and Bill writes, hi, Dave, John and Pilot Pete. Here's an alternative to iWeb once it is retired. This is for web pages. My school is using Weebly, www.weebly.com. Very easy to use. They have a free version and a pro version that offers some more features. And he gives some of the pricing here. Uh, but even the free version is a great deal. So I took a quick peek at this and it looks like a web-based method of hosting and building web pages. Which That's great. Cool. Didn't really try it, but uh, but yet another option for for all those people that are going to get jettisoned from uh, MobileMe in months. It's coming, folks, sooner than you think. I think Apple's actually been sending reminders to people. Yeah, I didn't get one, but but uh, some people on the TMO staff did. We ran an article about it. Um, I guess I don't know Monday or Tuesday. I guess, but uh, yeah, I'm, I don't know. Um, do you think they're going to release an update to Snow Leopard? that has iCloud in it. Cause I do. I, I think, I think that has to come before the, uh, before the sunset. I hope they do because I'm seeing a lot of people that I follow and just general chatter from people saying, so really I got to move to lion in order to do this. And that right now for Mac and, and I don't understand it. Well, I think I do understand it, but right now iCloud is lion only. Correct. And the thing is, if you look at it, but it, on the Mac side, it is. But on the Windows side, from what I recall, you can use either, I think, Windows 7 or Vista. So on the Windows side, I find it odd that they're offering multiple options as far as the operating system you can use with iCloud, but not on the Mac side. And, and there were reports of back in like August or September. I never saw this in the developer portal, but but there were reports where people said that they saw um uh, maybe a limited access trial uh, of a uh, beta of ten six nine that had an iCloud pref pane in it. Um, so it it certainly was developed. It's interesting that it has not resurfaced. That's perhaps a little troubling. I don't know. Well, right. I guess they they okay. just want to encourage people to migrate to uh, Lion. But but to me, it's not a technical. I don't think it's a technical issue. It's no, no, clearly not. Uh, okay, uh, James wanted to remind us all that uh, in Lion, of course, you have the, the files are locked after a certain period of time. And he wanted to remind us that uh, you can set that period of time. The default is two weeks. But if you go into system preference, it's, it's in a weird spot. It's in system preferences, time machine options. And uh, and you can set uh, the time after last edit before files are locked to one day, one week, two weeks, one month or one year. And uh, and there might be more if you're willing to edit a P list file. But suffice to say, that's probably enough for most folks. But I want it to be three weeks and two days, John, just for the record. <laughs> and uh, and then lastly, from uh, in the tip section, actually, lastly. Tony, uh, through the course of answering a question for Tony, it came up that uh, it in, I think all, I don't, I don't know. I think it is actually in all versions of OS 10, uh, the little, and this is just a, a fun little tip. There's few things that will actually be useful that come from this, but you know, you, when you hit the little yellow um, minimize box, it, it does that little genie effect where it scoots down into the, uh, into the menu. Well, uh, you can slow that down by holding down the shift key and uh, and it will slow go down very, very slowly while you have the shift key down and the same with waking it up. Now, I think this was just done so that Apple could demo it uh, on stage and, and show how sexy it is and that it's actually doing the whole thing with with the active stuff in the window. But uh, but it is kind of fun. Show your friends show off for your friends. And you can also change those genie effects, can't you, John? If you go into the. uh the dock system preferences, right? You can, uh, you can use this, the genie effect or the scale effect. And then I think there's an, there's one more if you're willing to run a, uh, a third party to set it. 
So it's in system preferences dock and then minimize windows using genie or scale. I'm concerned myself with such eye candy. Eye candy is fun though. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's part, it's part of the OS. It's if, good. You got, if you have the horsepower. Yeah. Although it seems like, man, if you change that to scale, your, I bet your system feels faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So that's, uh, that's our tips there. Anything to, uh, to report John this week before we move on to Javier's question. No, I want to dive into these questions. I, All right, I think cool. we got some good ones here. I, I couldn't agree more. All right. Javier writes, I have a couple of minor issues with my Mac that may or may not be related, and they may be related to the short username. Essentially, last year, I ran into problems with my user account uh, that required me to create a brand new user account. My old account short name is not the same as the one for my new one, and I think this may be messing a bit with my system. Not enough to cause any serious problems, but enough to be annoying. The first issue is not so much an issue as a question. When I look into my preferences folder, I see a bunch of things ending in .lock file. What are these things? It's all over the place, and I don't think they were there under Snow Leopard. Uh, and then number two, the second issue has to do with the background color for certain windows. Mac OS allows you to change the background color, color either system-wide or on a window-by-window window basis. In the past, I found this to be very useful because I like to change the background color of certain windows, as you see in the screenshot he sent. Uh, however, if I modify file organizations, such as arrange by name, for example, the background color goes back to the default white and the color option becomes grayed out in the uh, preferences in the finder. OK, so let's start with the second one first, since we just read that one. Uh, the answer is Yes. When you are the only time that you can have and set a custom background color is when the finder preferences are set to arrange by none, which means custom arrangement. Um, and that is uh, that is that. So it's under under the view. Right. Is it under the view menu, John? Is that wait? Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's under the view menu and arrange has to be set to none. So view. It's uh, show view options. But if a range is set to anything else, you cannot set the background color in Lion. In Snow Leopard, you could. So that is a change in Lion. And uh, back to the first question, lock files are also a change in Lion. I think they were previously hidden. I'm not convinced that they're new, but certainly their appearance is new. And they may very well be new, but it, it stands to reason that they were there before. Typically, lock files are used to... Uh, Indicate like, you know, for example, you might have com.apple.mail.plist.lock file. And that means that the the file uh, without the dot lock file extension is in use by something. And it's there to tell other uh, applications, don't mess with this. Uh, I'm using this file. So that's it's a normal thing. I have it on my computer with Lion. Uh, I could certainly check it here in Snow Leopard, but I don't think I don't think it was there. Do you know anything about this, John? I've seen them online and I didn't really look for them on Snow Leopard. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking in Snow Leopard and I don't see them at all there, but let's look at hidden files. And they are not here either. So we simply don't have lock files in Snow Leopard. So they are new to Lion. That's interesting. I wonder what construct they used in Snow Leopard to keep things safe. Or maybe they didn't, and maybe that's why they added it to Lion. Could be. All right. Next. Is this me now? Yeah. Yeah, go. Okay. And actually, I got a, a last-minute update here. But now I can actually see this now, because I'm running. Now, Of course, now that I moved to IMAP Mail, I'm running Mail on my podcasting machine. So I can see the interaction. Because our Mac Geek app mail is is on now, IMAP now. Wait, wait a minute. Is is having email on your podcasting machine a good thing? Is that going to cause even more like uh, distractions and all that stuff? Because I I have a real hard time um, if I have to quit mail on my podcasting machine while we're podcasting. Otherwise, I I get like totally distracted. No, so. I'm okay. I, I'm only using it right now for the purpose of reading the ongoing conversation oh, that it. we're having here. Got it. No, if I was running Twitter, then it would be a lost cause. Right. All right. Right. Yeah, and I stopped doing that during the podcast. Uh, it's just rude. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. we did it sometimes. All right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. here's 
a note that we have from Dr. Michael. And he started off by sending us a URL and it's, it's a double click .net URL. I'm not going to uh, read it off. Uh, I don't think it's terribly important, but here's the problem. So he started off by saying, if Chrome is the default, Chrome opens. If Firefox is the default, Firefox opens. And if Safari is the default, it opens with the exact same URL. So what's happening is his browsers, and, and then we'll, we'll dig into this a bit here. And he said, this started yesterday with no warning. I did not install anything or else. Help me, Mr. Wizards. So I stepped in as trying to be a wizard here. And I wanted to try to break down this problem here, at least yeah. ask a question. And the first question is that in almost every browser, typically in the general preferences, they have something called a home page. And so my, what I was wondering is, and it's the first page that you'll see if you open the browser. You don't have to, but a lot of people do. Like, I think I set mine to apple.com just for, just for fun. Uh, and I was just saying, you know, is it possible another program may have set this value, which I think it's an appeal list file. So if you got a program, it may do that. It may set your homepage when you open the browser. So he got back to me on that. So I thought, yeah, I figured this out. Well, I didn't, but I think, uh, but I have some more. So then he got back and said, okay, the homepage designation remains the same on all my browsers, but here is more information. The default browser auto launches at boot. I do not have to open it. Mm. Oh. So right. it's not. It all, um, okay. So it's not that this page is opening every time he opens his browser. It's that this page is opening in his default browser every time he starts up. Right. And how oh. could this be? And I'm going to tell you. Go. I have two things. Then he goes on. So one, it's always the same exact URL. And. Three, the URL is lo loaded in a second tab. The default homepage is loaded in the first tab, and a second tab is opened with this URL. Oh, interesting. So, and this is what, why I'm reading the email trail here. Now, here are two thoughts that I have, Dave. So, I was asking myself, or asking just, asking myself, yeah, I talked to myself. It's, hey, sometimes uh, it's the how, only way to troubleshoot, how, man. How could a browser possibly open a URL when you log in? And I'm going to tell you how. Is and it, it actually surprised me. Yeah, I did ahead. some research. So there are two ways that you can do this. I found not one, but two ways. So one, which surprised me, and you know, this part of the OS becomes more and more flexible the more I look at it here. So one thing you can do, now if you're in a browser and you click on a website and you drag it to the desktop, what's going to, what it's going to create is a web loc file, W-E-B-L-O-C, which is basically a URL inside of a file, and it has the dot web lock. And that's kind of handy because if you need that later and you double click on it, it's going to open that web page in your browser. Kind of neat, huh? I don't know if you ever tried that or if you even found it useful. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm asking you, Dave. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, right. It's a it's a handy little thing. You can drag them into, you know, apps like Yojimbo or email or whatever, and they, they work great. Yeah, Yeah. so it's a standard way to represent a, a URL or web address right. uh, in a file. Here's the thing. Well, one thing you could do with this, Dave, is if you take that file and you go into accounts uh, and login items and you drag that into the login items, well, what's going to happen is when you log in to your computer, it's going to open your default browser and go to that link. So I'm wondering if either intentionally or inadvertently, either some program put that in the login items list, or if maybe someone accidentally dragged a dra drug dragged a weblock file into the login item list. Yeah, that's what it sounds like has happened for sure. Because that is, I verify that'll happen and it'll appear as a web location uh, under the kind of document. Most of the things you're probably going to see in login items are applications. But as, as we mentioned, you can drag different things. And I didn't know if this would work. I've never found a reason to do it. So that's one possibility. But here's the other possibility. Um, there could be a plist file running a terminal command. Now, this brings up the second question. How can you open a URL in a web browser from the terminal? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. And the I'm going to that. give you the answer because I, I did, I did yeah. a little Google foo and I found this out. So if you type at the terminal, the word open space and a URL like HTTP colon slash slash www.macgeekgab.com, it's going to open that web page in your browser. Huh? Yes, it does. Hey, that's pretty good, man. <laughs> 
I never tried that before, but yeah. but I was poking around and uh, and uh, yeah, the question was how do I open a web page in, in uh, from the terminal? And that's how you do it. So what I'm so that, suspecting that's, that's interesting because you can open a file that way too. I mean, you can say open you know slash, slash uh, users slash Dave slash documents slash whatever and and open a file. But it but it does say in the man page if the file's in the form of a URL, the file will be opened as a URL. That's awesome. Oh, you look at the main page for open. Okay. I did. Very I good. Know what so, was. so what I'm suspecting, and I don't know if we still have to, to get the answer back as to if one of these two things are possible, but I said, look in using something like Lingon, or you could look manually, but maybe someone or some program put a plist file into either launch agents or launch daemons or something that is doing this on your behalf. I don't know why it would. Right. So my strategy here was finding out who, how could you possibly open a URL in your default browser. And as far as I can tell, these are, I don't know if they're the only two ways, but the two ways that I could on short notice uh, figure out. Maybe there's another way to open a URL when you, when you log in, but this is what I came up with. So we'll wait for Dr. Michael to get back to us and let us know if either of these are true. If not, back to the drawing board. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe you get a hint in the console of who's trying to do this because it's certainly not normal behavior. Yeah. 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 But yeah, the fact that it's happening, like you, like you said, in all, all in whatever his default browser is, tells me that, yeah, it would have to be something like, like what you've described. Yeah. All right. Uh, Moving on to Ken. Ken says, after researching iCloud for a while now, I decided it was time to migrate. No problems at all. All data was available and all looked good apart from Yojimbo syncing. But here's hoping that is up and running soon. Uh, and he's right. Uh, Yojimbo still only syncs with MobileMe. But uh, but word is from bare bones that they are working on changing that to uh, presumably iCloud, although they haven't made that entirely clear. Anyway, uh, he continues. I came uh, from having a .Mac account, which became MobileMe. I used pop to download my mail to my main computer before migrating to iCloud. I bought a new Mac mini copied the emails from my old power Mac and all just fine. Then I realized that iCloud does not support pop emails, only IMAP. Okay. I have to move with the times. I see that, but I'm confused about one big thing. My mailbox is huge, has many folders and rules to move mail to many correct places. I have a few aliases and these are basically attached to the different folders. I need to redo my mail account in OS 10 mail, but I don't want to lose anything. And also I don't require older emails to be accessible via iPad, iPhone, web, etc. But I do need them for business tax, tax and historical purposes. So can I export my emails first? So I don't lose any delete and recreate my account as IMAP and OS 10. But can I also create locally stored mailboxes and have emails moved into these with rules to keep things organized uh, and have them not appear in the cloud as that is not necessary for me? What is my best course of action? OK, so uh, the best thing for you, yeah, is, is going to be to maintain local folders and, and the way mail represents those is it calls them on my Mac. There is a little header, uh, especially once you've added an IMAP account, you'll see the mailboxes header in the list, and then you'll see a header for each of your IMAP accounts. And then below that, typically, although you can move these around, uh, is going to be the header for on my Mac. On my Mac is your local folders. Uh, and of course, you can archive things into those manually by dragging or, as you mentioned, can with rules that move things in. Um, there's no need to, as far as migrating from pop to IMAP, there's no need to archive and then re-import. Of course, archiving as a backup step, just in case everything falls apart, that's not a bad idea. But, but once you've done that, um, here, here's the way it's going to work. When you, the, the process is going to be as you describe, but, but listen first and then do it because there's a, a very important caveat that we're going to discuss. But essentially what you're going to do is you're going to delete your pop account and then re-add your IMAP account. But everything that was in those on my Mac folders is going to be there because they're just on your Mac and they're not assigned to any one mail account. And that's the important part. Now, I said there's a caveat. When you pop mail, typically, and, and for, the, for the purposes of this discussion, let's assume that this is true for you. Typically, your pop mail is not going to reside on the server once you've downloaded it. 
right? So once you've downloaded something into your inbox, the only place it lives is in your inbox on your Mac. Well, here's something interesting. When you delete that pop account, it deletes all of the folders associated with that account, which include your inbox, your sent box, your drafts, your outbox, if it exists, and your trash and junk mail, potentially, depending on how you've got that configured. So you're going to want to really what I would recommend doing is add your IMAP account first and then delete the pop account. But in between, move everything over. So if you want all the stuff that was in your pop sent folder to be in your IMAP sent folder, just drag inside mail, highlight, you know, select all, drag it to, to send the same thing with your inbox. And of course, if you want to keep your trash folder, uh, you would do the same thing with that. Then once that move has finished and you can check that by going to the window menu activity, uh, that will show you a little activity window to tell you what mail is doing in the background. And once that window is empty, then you know that you're safe to delete uh, your pop account. So that's a little trick there. But uh, but yeah, know that your pop inbox, especially including those other folders, uh, goes away when you delete that account. And when I say delete it, I mean going into mail preferences accounts and removing it from the list. You could also just make it inactive by choosing the account and going to advanced and unchecking the enable this account box, but, um, and that, and maybe that's a, a, you know, a good way to test to make sure you've got everything you need before you go ahead and blow it away. So many thoughts on this, John, you know, I went through, I, I did pretty much the same thing when I was migrating. So I took the contents that were stored locally, yep, dragged them over. The only hitch I ran into is that apparently my email was migrated. You know, I migrated it from Eudora and, I never really archived it. And I think over time, some of it got corrupted because what happened is then when I tried to copy things over from the local folder to the IMAP folder, the copy operation would often stop. Mm. I think when it found a message that was not formed properly, I don't know if it was mail or the receiving IMAP server, but usually what happened is one or more headers or, you know, the contents of the email were you know, there was a weird ASCII character or something in there and it, and somebody just gave up and said, Oh, I'm stop, I'm going to stop copying. Right. So, uh, so one suggestion is you may want to copy in because then the problem is I had to find out where it left off. So, oh, okay. So one suggestion, uh, yeah. So, so maybe you, you don't want to copy the, the, the whole enchilada there. Well, yeah, for him, it. he's only, he's not, he in fact doesn't want his archives online. Um, oh, oh, okay. You know, so it's, we're just talking about inbox and sent, but depending on how you manage your mail, those, I mean, those folders could be substantial. So yeah, definitely yeah, good advice. Cause mine, I never really archived anything. So I have all my Mac observer emails back from day one. Right. I mean, I have like 10, uh, yeah, tens of thousands. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they got corrupted as I mentioned along the way. So. All right. right. What is next? Oh, this is a good one. Okay. Th- this we, we get a, get on the hardware. Well, we have a tip here or, or a confirmation. And then we have a, a, a little hardware geekiness here. All right. So who is this? Douglas. All right. So Douglas says Dave and John, not John and Dave this time. And of course, pilot Pete. So first the tip here or the confirmation, because we, we, we suspected this or, or I think I was dancing around this last night, but he confirms it on your last show. You talked about restoring a lion recovery partition and you mentioned the lion recovery disc assistant. Another option is using carbon copy cloner. The latest version supports cloning of the lion recovery disc. Lion recover. I think recovery is what I mean. Along with the main drive, you can then use that clone to boot another Mac and install just the lion recovery disc. I tried it and it works without a hitch. So that's good. Thank you for the confirmation. I suspect, and I suspect the other utilities that do full disc copy can, can do that as well. As long as they understand what a partition is, which I think they do. Right? They kind of have to. Yeah. Okay. So that's great. Now here's the second one. All right. And this is the hardware geekiness. I also have a question on Ram. My friend gave me a 2007 20 inch two gigahertz iMac. Since it came with two one gigabyte Ram chips, my friend replaced one of them with a two gigabyte chip. When looking at it, I noticed that it was a PC2 6400 800 megahertz chip. However, it seems that this model, iMac 7,1, requires a PC2 5300 667 megahertz chip. System information shows the 2 gig chip speed at 667 megahertz. Is there a problem using this RAM chip with this Mac? 
It seems to be working okay, but I'm going to buy another 2 gigabyte chip to give it a total of 4 instead of the current 3, and since RAM is pretty cheap, I was wondering if I should just go ahead and get two new chips for it and replace the PC2 6400 with the correct chip. So, dug into this a little bit, because yeah, I've been scratching my head with all this... I'm curious about this because this, I, yeah, I don't know what these numbers mean. I, I mean, I know what some of them mean, but, but not all of them. So, and I'm going to tell you what I told him. Okay. <laughs> That'll take that sounds, it sounds ominous. <laughs> and my, my reply was as follows. Hello, Douglas. There is not a problem with this RAM configuration, though it isn't optimal. The P uh, and then I went into a bit here because I was curious about these numbers as well. So you have a number of, parameters for for these ram chips here so the first one is the general class of chip and in this case it's a pc2 chip and that's the the chip technology and you may have seen this there's pc pc2 i think there's pc3 and none are compatible with the other and i think they actually make it physically impossible for you to use one type of chip in a, in a slot that expects another so, right okay yeah but yeah just because the, the the physical layout of them does not fit and i think i tried this once and, and the same applies to uh the, the, the chips, whether they be in a, in an iMac or, well, yeah, I guess there's really no difference. Cause I remember I had some old memory chips at one point and I, I was playing around on my MacBook pro and I'm like, you know what? I wonder if I could take one of my older memory chips and put it in. And I tried to plug it in and it wouldn't. And I was getting ready to, to break out the hammer and you know, force it. Yeah. And then right. I'm like, wait a second. If something, if, if a chip doesn't fit into a socket, there's probably a reason. And there was, because then I looked more closely and saw that, the, the the socket and the chip were physically different. Right. They're, they're like, by the way, don't do this because I suspect if you do it, you're going to blow something up. So now the next number, and this is what this number means. So there's two that are measures of the performance of the chip. So the, the PC2 5300, what does the 5300 mean? Well, 5300, uh, from what I get, that is the maximum memory throughput in megabytes per second. So that's nice to know. All right. So he, for example, he mentioned two different chips. So he mentioned a PC two sixty four hundred and a PC two fifty three hundred. So the sixty four hundred can potentially, and I don't think it's guaranteed, but it potentially could transfer data up to sixty four hundred megabytes per second. Okay, that's kind of cool. And then the third is the megahertz, is the frequency of one of the clock signals. Now a lot of these do clock doubling and stuff like that, but it's it's the frequency of a signal that drives the chip. And he also mentioned there's two, 667 and, uh, and 800. Okay. Uh, and actually, if you saw this here, they Google had a Google Doodle on Hertz. So what is Hertz? Hertz is the number of times something happens per second, but it was his uh, birthday or something. It, like that, it would have ago. been like his, yeah, 168th birthday or something yesterday. And so my answer to him is, is a, a, now this is a, a question that I have, Dave. So what he's doing is he's putting a chip that's rated faster than what the machine needs. And there's no problem with that, as far as I know. Well, the, well, the machine, what it's doing is it's basically saying, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to talk to this chip at, at this speed because that's what that computer talks at. So I don't think there's any problem putting a faster or higher capability chip, assuming that it's in the same class, you know, so of course it's plugged in there. I don't see any problem with that. Um, now, the question I had, and I think you answered it, Dave. Now, I don't know what happens if you try to put a slower, this is just an open question I have, but I don't know what happens if you try to put a slower clock rate chip it's like this, this, this machine is supposed to take 667 megahertz RAM chips. I don't know what happens if you put a slower chip, if it, if it just, from what I can tell, it, it'll drag everybody down. So with any of these memory chips, if there's a slower chip in a bank, then all the chips are going to operate at that speed. And the, I don't know why you'd want to do this. Yeah. I, I've never really tried it. I think you mentioned you've tried it and, and sometimes it'll work if you try to put a slower rated chip into a machine that's expecting higher rated. Yeah. It, I I've seen it work. It's been a long time since I've seen that work, but um, I, I mean, it, it's not advisable, obviously. Uh, and it, and it depends. I mean, the motherboards have tolerances from what I remember that it would, you know, if you go too slow, it's like, yeah, no, no, that's not going to work. You know, I think what happens at some level, it'll say, Hey, you know, memory chip, what's your capability? And it'll say, Oh, I can run this fast. Then it'll be like, Oh, okay. I'll, Right. And I'll give you a clock at this frequency, or it could just say, no, I need something faster. The only thing that I noticed is that, so this machine, like many Macs, uh, according to, uh, according to the specs that I found supports interleaving. So the only problem here, 
So it's not so much the mismatch in the capabilities. Uh, I don't I don't really see that as a problem. But the problem here is that there's a two gig chip and a one gig chip. So you're not going to benefit from what's called interleaving, which gives you a wider memory bus and, you know, typically a single, you know, single digit percentage increase from what I've seen on the benchmarks. Right. So my advice would be at least, yeah, so do what he's going to do here is, is get it so you have two two gig chips. If you want to, just for peace of mind or, or just, uh, you know, OCD or whatever, you may want to make sure that the two chips are, in fact, you know, marked the same or have the, or have the same advertised capability. Right. Right. Cool. All right. We had, um, we had quite a few emails, John, uh, this week about hard drives. Uh, various things about hard drives, but, uh, but certainly about hard drives. So why don't you, uh, why don't you lead us into this discussion, starting with Chris? Oh goodness. Oh, another one. Oh, two in a row. Okay. Guys, that's concise. I had used AJA system tests to test the performance of storage, HDDs or hard disk drives, SSDs, uh, solid state in snow leopard, but it doesn't seem to work in line. When I push the start button, nothing happens. And I confirm this. I've used this in the past. Uh, I think AJA actually makes graphic cards and stuff. But for some strange reason, they make yeah. this. They make this hard drive benchmarking utility, which is great, and it, it lets you set all sorts of parameters. But nope, doesn't work. <laughs> Press the button; it just sits there and says zero. Yeah, zero bytes. Just bite, means that Lion makes hard drive slower. That's all, John. <laughs> You're not believing the results. Yeah, so so I think they have to update it so it's not compatible with Lion, which is really kind of weird because I. I don't know why they want to change the API that's used for reading and writing files, but I guess they have. Yeah. Or they're doing something else wacky. I don't know. Do you have any other recommendations for quick and dirty read, write measurement tools that work well in Lion? Well, I found one that I've used in the past. It, it, it's probably not the best utility, but the price is right in that it's free. And I've used this and, and it does run in Lion. So one that I found here is Xbench. Hmm. I think this has been out for quite a while here. I mean, actually, I'm looking right now. I'm looking at the page for it. Uh, compatibility, Mac OS 10, 10.3.9. So this has been out for a while, and it does a whole bunch of benchmarks, including hard drive benchmarks, or at least very basic hard drive benchmarks. So it'll do, and usually the test that you're looking for in a utility is sequential read, sequential write, which means you know it's going to write to sequential sectors on the disk, which usually is going to be the best performance, and then a random read and a random write, and then also different block sizes. So it does all of those tests. I think it does 4K and 256K block sizes, and it does both random and sequential tests. So, and I ran it on my Lion machine, and it works. So, cool. I would say this this is a program that that'll that'll give you the benchmarks. Um, a better one, though, it's a commercial tool. But the the one that I like because it's very comprehensive is uh, the the Drive Measurement Utility and Drive Genius. I agree that that one's awesome. But, well, just but because you're right, it, it does similar. Yeah. Well, it does similar. Well, I think it's a it's a great package, but it, it does similar operations, but it it, it also does uh, more block sizes. So this this X bench um, only does two. Drive Genius, I think, does anywhere from four K to like sixteen megabytes or something. So you really get a good picture of the the performance of the drive, and it also does you know the random read, random write, sequential, sequential. Right. Uh, and it shows you nice graphs and all that. So, so to me, you know, if if uh, if you're going to be doing a lot of benchmarking, I think that that's a better tool to to get the uh, the big picture. Cool. Or you could just break out a stopwatch. Well, you know, I'm, oh no, no. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm gonna. No, I, I, I'll make a recommendation here because if I and and actually I'm, you know, at long last I'm wrapping up one of my product reviews here. But I did some tests here, and I would say that if you want to do some tests, no, I uh, seriously. Get a stopwatch, or I actually use my iPhone. And a couple of tests that you may want to do, I would say the two major tests that you want to do, at least benchmarking a drive, is one, how does it perform with big files? So the two tests that I did is one is I took a big wampin file, like a gigabyte file, and I copied it from one drive to another. To me, that's one measure of performance. And then another test I did was a folder about the same size, full of a whole bunch of itty-bitty files. Mm. Because I think that stress is different uh, different aspects of the performance of the drive and that you're if you're copying in a huge WAMP and file you're probably going to get the best performance that you're going to get whereas if you're copying a bunch of little files then you get the whole latency issue which is where rotational drives kind of fall down and SSDs really excel right cool uh, alright Scott has a very interesting question he asks 
I have a Netgear ReadyNAS Ultra 6 Plus, which is a network um, RAID unit, uh, multi-drive network standalone um, file sharing, and uh, and it, it'll perform various other functions. They're actually kind of cool. Uh, the other week, it reported that one of the disks had failed, and so I returned the drive to Amazon and got a replacement. The thing is, though, I was always curious to determine for myself if the drive was actually dead or not. And I wanted to try it in my Mac, but I had no external hard drive enclosure. So I decided to buy one just in case another hard disk failed at some future point And I had the means to test it. I love that geek thinking. That's awesome. Uh, he says a few weeks went by and I've now just been told that my NAS has another hard disk in it. That's failed a different disk in a different drive bay than the original one that had failed. So this time I put the drive in my Mac's external USB enclosure and ran disk utility. I repartitioned the drive and lo and behold, the drive appears to be perfectly usable. I've tried copying files to and from the drive and it works flawlessly. It's a Seagate green uh, 5900 RPM drive, which I think is similar to what you have in your Drobo, John. Uh, He says, I had a look on the Seagate website and their only hard drive diagnostic tool is Windows only. So what do you think? Should I regard the drive as failed, even though my Mac seems perfectly happy with it? Should I invest in something like Drive Genius, which seems pricey just to test the uh, drive? This, of course, coming from a man who is willing to buy a an enclosure to do that. But I, I get your thinking. Uh, or do you know of any other software solutions which are cheaper that I could try? Any ideas would be appreciated. So, yeah, the, the interesting um, <laughs> thing here is I would actually, before you drive yourself crazy, uh, is I would get with Netgear's tech support and they're you're, they're usually pretty good. I've dealt with them before and determine uh, and find out what criteria they use to determine whether or not this drive has actually died. Uh, they, instead of looking at like read or write failures, they might be looking at, you know, every hard drive maintains uh, a count and, and a really a table of what blocks it knows to be bad on the disc. Now, typically drives come from the factory with, with some bad blocks and they're just mapped out and everything's fine. Uh, Also drives typically come with extra blocks so that as other things go bad, those can be reassigned and there's a limited number of these. And so it's possible that somehow Netgear is reading this information from the drive and deciding, ah, you've surpassed what, Netgear has programmed me to consider an acceptable number of bad block remappings, and therefore I'm going to report you as bad. And, it, you know, in a NAS unit, you're relying on this drive all the time. You may be relying on it for mission critical data. Uh, you know, you, you might probably doing some kind of raid with it where you've got redundancy. And so this thing is being hyper protective of uh, the places where you store your your data. So it's possible that that's all that's going on here. And yeah, when you when you mount it with disk utility and repartition and test, it's going to work fine. But it's just gotten past the point where Netgear says, no, we're not going to live with this anymore, Um, because at some point all drives will fail. And that's I think Netgear's goal is to get you to replace this thing before it actually craters and you, you know, start either losing data or lose protection uh, without it being properly prepared. So I, my, that's my guess, John. Uh, but if you've got another guess, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Oh no. Go. You're laughing. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if this neck gear thing is a piece of garbage and it's blowing up drives. Well, but it didn't blow up the drive. The drive works fine. Yeah, but it sounds like uh, 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 I was kidding. Oh, okay. no, I, I've never used this Netgear stuff, but yeah, I'm with you. I think it, it, it's criteria for ter- determining that a, a, a drive has failed, maybe uh, more robust than. Right. Yeah, it, it's part of the enclosure or whatever algorithm you're using. Uh, you know, it's funny you tell that story about the bad block remapping. Remember the days when you actually had to punch in the, the bad block list manually into the disk controller? I do. Yeah, I remember doing that. Yeah, the drive would say these blocks are bad and you had to manually punch it into the controller so it would know to skip them. That was the bad old days. The other thing I could suggest here is um, I'm not sure how this would work with NAS, but, you know, we're talking about Drive Genius again, but it really is a nice program. And and one thing that I used with it um, on my mini here is that they have an optional drive health monitoring system called Drive Pulse. Which oh, I really yeah. like. So, so you have that's, something that's similar to what his raid is doing, right? I mean, it, okay. Yeah. So it may be doing the, the the same thing, but if you don't have a raid that kind of does its own integrity checking, I guess what's nice about drive genius 
is if you run this drive pulse utility, it does three different things on a, on a regular basis. It'll check the fragmentation of the drive. It'll, uh, let me see, check preferences. I'm looking right now at my mini and then it'll do a volume consistency, yeah, volume consistency check, which is something that I think is in addition to things like smart, which are supposed to tell you that things are going bad, but it may not, but it also does this on, uh, on a regular occasion. So it's kind of a, it's nice that it does this for you. It just complements what other utilities may detect uh, eventually. And then it runs these, these things again, it schedules them and it runs them whether it's once a week or depending on the test here. But I like that it does it uh, for the most part, what it's done for me has, has been telling me when my drive is too fragmented and then you can run a, uh, and it's kind of neat because you, you, you say, okay, defragment, it reboots into a special mode uh, like command line mode does it and then reboots your system again. I think it's really nice uh, for, for, again, if you don't have a raid or other drobo or system that checks for bad drives, then, then yeah. I think the drive genius utility, because uh, the thing is you're never, people are rarely going to be running disutility and doing an integrity check on their own. Right. So it's nice that this hides in the background. It kind of does it for you and alerts you if something, if something's amiss. You know, I've been, I, I started this thing where I was ranting about drobo and uh, and perhaps there's other options. And this is one of the things that's been on my list. But as we've been going through it here, I realized that this uh, NAS is they, they tout it as the first NAS that is uh, TiVo compatible in terms of being able to push video to and from your TiVo natively inside the NAS, which is something I do all the time for my Drobo, but I can't do it natively in the Drobo. I have to uh, have a Mac running that essentially does that you know, handshake for me. So uh, yeah, we got to check out these. This is, this is good stuff. Maybe it's, uh, but they, you know, I, I, I'm curious about the speed of them because that's, that's really been my issue with the Drobo is, is um, the speed of it when dealing with small files and, and, and even the speed, the amount of time it takes just to mount the thing too. It, it's just slow in terms of like serving movie files. Like I talked about, you know, to my TiVo, Totally fine. Even HD quality stuff. Totally fine. You know, I mean, the, the the throughput of it is is no problem. It's the uh, the latency as it's jumping around with these little files that makes it really, really tough to to work with. You know, I had my iTunes library on mine for a while and it was just like too much. I couldn't wait. You know, when I click play on a song or I try to get info on a song and I have to wait, you know, 20 or 30 seconds before it would get the data. And I'm like, oh, this is for the birds, man. And heaven forbid somebody else in the house was running a time machine backup to. I mean, the whole mm. point of the thing was that you can have these these chopped up and, and partitioned time machine stores, which it, which is awesome. I mean, it's great. It's a great idea. But if you've got multiple people backing up simultaneously, you know, forget it. It takes forever, so, which maybe stands to reason. But it, in a in a general sense, even if nobody else is is using the the drive, it's just slow for small files. And so that was that was sort of the or that is sort of the frustrating thing I deal with with the Drobo. But so, but otherwise, um, I really like it. So I don't know. I want to check the thing. This the thing, thing that thing I notice is when it's slow to appear on my network when I wake my machine up. Yep. That's about the, that's one of the things I notice, And a lot of times things, because I have my machine do schedule time machine backups. A lot of times what will happen is time machine will wake up and say, Oh, I'm looking for the drive. And it eventually times out and says, I can't find your time machine drive. It's the, the, the dro- I, don't, I don't know what the drobo is doing. The thing I do like. That's interesting. I've, that, I've, I, I certainly see it take a long time to mount but I've never seen it fail to start a time machine backup. That's but that, I mean, you know, you've got different drives in yours than mine. And I think, I think that's part of this whole thing is, Ooh. is we've both chosen to go with green drives. I have Western digital green drives. You've got Seagate. No, I got the drives. same as you. No, no, I got the ones you recommended. I, you got the ones I recommended, which are not the ones I own because they, because the oh, one thanks. Yeah. Well, no, they were, I mean, it was the, the Seagate ones at the time were cheaper than the ones I, I had. So yeah, I've got Western digital green drives. You've got Seagate green drives and maybe yours take longer to spin up than mine, but, but perhaps that's the reason that these things are slow. I don't know. I, it's interesting. I, I, I reached out to the folks at Drobo um, and even sent them a link to the show and Nope. And I got the of, WD. Oh, okay. Then do I have Seagates? No, I'm, I'm ADD here. No. So I, I'm looking on my other computer here and I have a, a folder full of receipts and uh, yes, I got three 
uh, three Western Digital Caviar Green, two terabytes SATA three IntelliPower, sixty four megabyte cache, bulk OEM desktop drives. Okay, so I, I, whichever it is, I think I don't think we have the same drives. I I think you have you have if you have WD, then I have Seagate. I, I remember that when we were when we were going through it. But and amazingly, those at the time cost uh, about two hundred seventy bucks. Yeah, I know. Which, uh, I think the price has tripled since then. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, I guess they had these, uh, yeah, some plant somewhere got oh, yeah. flooded or blown up or something. So oh, yeah, they've all been the high huge, drive prices are huge problems over there. Yeah. The other thing I like about the Drobo is it does have an alerting mechanism. I don't think it's on by default, but I remember this when, when I first got it and I played around with it. I'm like, you know what? Just for kicks, let me pull a drive out and see what happens. <laughs> and as soon as I did, it sent an email saying, um, somebody did something stupid with the, the Drobo. Can you check on the Drobo? Somebody did something. Yeah. <laughs> Which was me pulling the drive out. Right. Um, well, another time I actually did have, I think I told you I had a drive that was sitting around my office here. Yes, my office, not my room. Um, sitting around my office here <laughs> for a couple of years. It was one of the ones that I think came in my original uh, Power Mac G5. And it was a like a 300 or 500 gig SATA drive. One of the first SATA drives. And, and I popped it in the Drobo. And after less than a week, uh, apparently the drive was just at the end of its lifetime. And I got the red light and I got an email saying, hey. The, the drive died. I'm, I'm, you know, doing a reconstruction, but you, you probably want to pull this drive and put another one in. Mm. And I think I even took it out and, you know, I, I don't know if I dropped it or beat it with a hammer or something uh, and and put it in again. And yeah, it came up again and it said, no, 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 really this, this drive is shot, dude. What are you doing? So I think it's one of the first drives I've ever had physically die on me before I, I, I tossed it and upgraded to a larger capacity. Well, that's good. That means you got the full use out of it. Yeah, man, drives are expensive. So I, I did my uh, my OCD thing too here, and I, I have I do I have the Seagate Barracuda drives, two terabyte drives that I bought in uh, uh, July, and I paid seventy nine ninety nine a piece for them. Okay, so, about the same thing. I think yeah. So I paid like uh, eight, uh, about eighty something dollars each. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look now, twice yeah, the price. The, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Where are we going next? I think I know Jed. Going next. I think I it's think time for have, Jed. And, and it says, I got to read this again. Okay. Yeah. Let me, let me get Jed up here. Jed. There's Jed. All right. No, that's not Jed. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right. I'm not. You, you want me to take I'm, this one? Well, I think I'm getting the email in the middle here. Okay. I don't know if I got the entire email here because it seems to be starting off on a, well, no, no, I'll go here. Uh, uh, John had mentioned that he put... Uh, all right, so so it's talking about my mention of playing around with SSDs and regular two and a half inch hard drives. Um, so Jed said he started looking at them. And uh, and I think uh, what he has right now, he has his eye on a 750 gigabyte. Yes, they're growing because I think when I looked, they were only 500. So I think they got 750. Now I think they may actually have terabyte two and a half inch uh, drives that are typically used in portables. But he said, I keep reading that it can get pretty loud. I want to put this in a Mac mini headless computer, which I use as a media center. The hard drive I currently have hooked up makes a bunch of sounds and can be annoying. So now I want to consider this when buying. So my question is, do you notice the volume or, or the noise of the drive? And my answer is as follows. So <laughs> the drive that I got uh, when I was looking at, I think it was around October 2010 when I was looking at my records here. So, so I upgraded from the... <laughs> People are going to think we're crazy, you know, being able to pull this stuff up and, and uh, find our orders and all that. But that's it's, that's the beauty of all this stuff. It's what we do. It's what we do. That's well, right. I want to look up the date here. So the thing is, my computer, I believe my Mac, when I ordered, it came with a 250 gig or thereabouts Hitachi hard drive. Okay. So when I uh, and I think that this will be my general advice when you're upgrading your hard drive in, in any Mac is at least take a look at the same series of drive and just see if it's gotten larger. And in this case it did. So it not only got larger, but the performance increased. I think they increased the cache, they increased the uh, platter to, so everything, everything got better with this drive. And I think all the companies that make the rotational drives uh, are doing this. The, the technology just keeps advancing. The particles get small, all the great stuff. So that was the, the fastest rotational drive I could find. It's a Hitachi seven K 500 series. Okay. Uh, so I decided to go with that, and I figured it's a safe bet because the the, the drive that was already in there was also a Hitachi uh, similar. I don't think it was a 7K. It was a, 
but it was a similar. No, I think it was a seven K five hundred series. It was just smaller. Uh, and then to to make my selection, what I did is I went to a, a site that uh, I certainly recommend, but it's called Tom's Hardware. Oh, and I love really, that site. And it's really platform independent in that I think they ran the benchmarks on a Windows machine, but it doesn't matter. So I basically looked at, and every now and then they'll do a summary uh, or a roundup of of different types of drives. Whether they be in this case, they had I think a two thousand nine uh, two and a half inch uh, mobile hard drive shootout. So I checked that chart, and this Seagate uh, came out pretty much near the top in their benchmarks. And uh, I think there were one or two others, but they were they were really much more expensive. So I made the choice to to get this one. So I got in. Mar- oh, I'm sorry, March 2010. It's in the emails when I bought it. Um, and I got it from OWC and check this out now, you know, again, the pricing has changed, but I got not only the drive, but also an external USB enclosure because, you know, what are you going to do with your old drive? Throw it away? No, yeah. I wouldn't do that. And OWC has a whole bunch of kits that include the drive and uh, a very basic USB two and maybe now USB three enclosure. But I got that for one twenty nine ninety nine, which I think was a great deal. And you're not going to get that anymore. No. Um, now the only downside that I noticed is when I got it, uh, so it wasn't a drive that was included, you know, of course, even though it was the same series, it wasn't the drive that came with the machine. And I think this was a problem because at first I thought I was going insane because I I would be using the machine and I would hear a little. That's not the click of death, is it? I thought, well, you know, that was my initial thought because a lot of hard drives uh, that you bring up a funny term and and we toss this around in in the industry, right? But no, the click of death, a lot of drives before they fail or or rotational drives, at least before they fail, will start making various noises. And one of them is, I guess, the head clicking around all over the place. and, And it's called the click of death. Yep. And it may not be a steady click, but it's a click. So, oh, you found it on Wikipedia, click of death. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but no, what it was doing, so it wasn't the click of death because I think the click of death gets more frequent until the drive eventually rolls over. And since it was a new drive, I thought it's probably not the click of death. On the other hand, you know, a lot of electronic items, they'll either die when you first get them or they'll last for a very long time. So it could have been, but it wasn't. And then I got really annoyed and I'm like, you know, what is this chattering that it's making? And, and after doing a bit of research here, I found out what it was. <sighs> There's a setting that apparently Apple set on the drive that came with the machine, but because this was a different drive, it wasn't set for whatever reason. Um, and it's called APM. I think it's a uh... advanced power management. Thank you. You bet, man. And advanced power management is a setting that you can make on a uh, ATA or SATA drive that tells the drive how aggressively it should be doing power management. In other uh, words, you know, how aggressive should it be in trying to save power, which, you know, in this case, if it's a drive that's in a portable computer with a battery, if the drive can because, you know, the motor spinning take power. So if you can at all reduce that uh, you know, make the drive safe power. That's a good thing. So I'd say it's probably one of the, maybe not the thing that draws the most power in the computer, but certainly uh, it, it draws a bit. The problem is one way that drives like to deal with this is to move the head into a park position and spin down the motor. And that makes noise. Click. So this utility is a short utility. We will link to it in the lovingly handcrafted show notes. Uh, but it's basically a utility that runs on the startup of the machine and sets the value to not make the drive so aggressive about power save. Uh-huh. Now, the downside is, yes, so my, my computer may not be lasting as long, but it's not going to, to me, eliminating the chattering noise. I mean, especially like sometimes I'll be using my machine at night and it's very quiet and all of a sudden I'll hear a chunk chunk from the computer. And it's the only noise I hear. And right. it, 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 it some people may be able to... <laughs> deal with it i couldn't you couldn't take it well it sounds like jed can't take no. it either so i mean it wasn't it wasn't you know it wasn't ear splitting but it was just this noise out of nowhere when normally now all i hear is the spinning of the motor and to me that's a nice comforting you know regular kind of white noise right that's right they talked about that in strange brew right the uh that you get paranoid schizophrenia from listening to that stuff what <laughs> don't you remember that movie Strange Brew, no, what, what, Bob and the, Doug the, McKenzie. Nah, it's been a while. Yeah. Great White North, eh? That's right. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, anyway, back on uh, back on track here. Greg, uh, we got a couple of things and cool stuff found before we wrap this one up. Greg writes regarding apps that do screenshots, add text and arrows, etc. I have tried Skitch. I've tried Little Snapper, and I've tried a program called Clarify It. Many of them are the same, but Clarify It is a little more user-friendly, and I love that it will actually give you free storage space and allow you to make a web page for sharing. You can add text, images, URLs, etc., and then share via email, PDF, RTF, their website, Clarify, and, uh, and, and it is. It's pretty cool. So as opposed to other, you know, like Skitches has always been my favorite because I can not only take a screenshot with it, but I can right inside Skitch do some very rudimentary um, markup of it. I can I can edit it. I can like scrub things out. I can also draw arrows and circles and highlight things and then and then convert it into whatever format I want. And off I go. Well, clarify it takes it to the next level. You can take, let's say I was doing a, a how-to for somebody and needed three or four screenshots. Well, you go and take the three or four screenshots and then you can assemble them together right inside Clarify It and it becomes a little documented editor. Editor, And like he said, you know, you can, you can if you want to do it in email, you could do just RTF and, and have all the data there. You could save it to Evernote or Yojimbo. You could save it to... Um, you know, a text edit document if you wanted, or you can output it as a PDF, or like he said, you can save it to their website and just give somebody a URL. So very, very cool. Um, and thank you for, uh, for hipping us to that. This is, uh, this is, I say it all the time, but this is the thing I love about this show. John is we get to learn things too. And that is awesome. And Steve wants to suggest, uh, something called Franker. F-R-A-N-K-E-R. It's a Safari extension that will translate words or sentences and output them right on the web page next to the original. So you go into your Safari extensions and you set this to auto detect the language that uh, it's coming from and then tell it what you want it translated to. Uh, and you can, uh, of course, you know, for me, I would choose English. And in his example, he he chose English. And then it's cool. He went to this website with some Japanese text and there's the, you know, katakana. And then right next to it, is in parentheses and in green kind of offset is what that uh, translates to. So really, really cool, especially as we all eventually find ourselves on, on uh, websites where the text may not be in English. So cool stuff found indeed. Do you have anything to, to add to our, uh, our cool stuff found pile before we, before we rock this one out here, John? Um, a nice translation engine is a uh, Babelfish. Is it Yahoo? I think it's babelfishyahoo.com. Oh, okay. I'll check that. I always use the Google one, just google.com slash translate. See, Babelfish is another one, of course, the Babelfish from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, Google is a good one, too. And actually, I found that uh, uh, the uh, Twitter client that I use on my Mac... I'm not going to say it because it'll sound like I'm swearing, but yes, uh, but it actually, I noticed this because uh, some people I follow, um, I know I follow one person who uh, occasionally will tweet in Arabic, another, yeah, in Japanese, another one in uh, Swedish. So yeah, so you highlight and, and I think I hit command T and it'll sit there for a moment, spit it out to Google and then comes back and translates it, which uh, it's it's such a cool aspect. You know, I mean, Twitter being global in general, yeah. but when you have people that are you know, rude enough not to speak in my language. It's nice that you could translate. Right. No, it's true. <laughs> uh, I did want to add a little context because it, I, I found it, it uh, interesting. Um, you said the Babelfish, uh, of course, comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which it does. But the name Babelfish, I mean, it was a fish, so that's why they called it a fish. But, but the, the, the name Babel uh, actually comes from the Bible. Right. And the tower, tower of the tower of Babel. Right. That was in in the Bible. And it was like the, the the fall of the tower caused all the multiple languages that we have, I think, was the, the general gist of the uh, of the story there. So, yeah, man, that's good stuff. Yeah. Translate.google.com is the uh, is the URL for Google's. They all work. They all work quite well, in fact. And I remember, actually, you know, if you haven't read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think pretty much any of our listeners would appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's fun stuff. All right. But in my reflection on the Babelfish, and this is the final thing, just to show his humor here, 
a final comment on the Babelfish. What, what it did was basically translate, so you could understand any language. And one of the quotes here I remember from Douglas Adams that just, just cracks me up. Meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different, different races and cultures, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's better if you two don't speak. Because hey, if, if if somebody doesn't doesn't know that you're insulting them, then you're you're not going to get all worked up and, and yeah, yeah, you're good to go. <laughs> That's true. But it's a great uh, series. Yeah, it is fun. All right, uh, let's see. Email. You folks get to email. Well, there's actually two email addresses that you get to use. Um, uh, really, there's four. So we'll say them in order what? here. No, 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 no. Wait, bear with me on this, John. So we've got Whoa. premium at MacGeekGab.com, right? And then we've got premium at MacGeekGab.com. And uh, number three would be, John? Premium at MacGeekGab.com. Correct. And then number four... So the, the first three are for your submissions, uh, uh, it, you know, questions, tips, hints, anything that you want to send uh, to John and I for uh, cookies for the purposes of the show. Right. Cookies. There you go. And then uh, address number four is customer support at MacGeekGab.com. And that's if you're having any problems with your account. And that it's really important to separate that out, especially uh, now, because, uh, as I mentioned, I'm going on uh, vacation next week. And, uh, and so I may not see all of the email coming into premium at, and, uh, but customer support at, in addition to going to John and I, also goes to Adam Christensen, who helps us out with all of our tech stuff on the back end here. And so he can help you out with, uh, with any problems in, in our absence. So that's, uh, it's really important to make sure you use that one for any problems you might have with the feed or your subscription or anything like that. Uh, and we really do. I know we say it all the time, but... Man, it, it's awesome being able to do this premium thing, and I really, uh, that's thanks to all of you, so so thank you very much. Yeah, we say it all the time, but there may be people who are listening for the first time, and if you are, welcome. Mm. Absolutely. That's right. We definitely have some new subscribers. Because I know we get, yeah, no, yeah. I see it all, yeah, we, we see the activity, and uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's thank great. I like, I like our... Uh, I like our, our family is growing here. Yeah. So other ways to, to reach us, uh, I would say another way, Dave, in addition to email, is you pick up your iPhone, your Battlefield phone, two cans with a string, if you can dial a number on them, and ah. you would call 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. And you can also visit us on Facebook, facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. It's, it's growing. Every time I go there, there's 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 more people. It's That's amazing. A beautiful thing. Twitter.com slash John F. Braun is him, slash Dave Hamilton is me, slash Mac Geek Cab is the feed for the show, slash Pilot Pete is that guy who's been really busy lately, and slash Mac Observer, of course, is all the headlines from the Mac Observer all day long. I think that's it, John. I think we're out of here. As I said, I'm on vacation next week, so you we will return on Monday, March 5th. Wah! Yeah. Where are you going? Uh, we're going down to Florida, down on the uh, Gulf Coast of Florida, Naples area. Where, uh, oh, we've got not, some the, uh, not the Reedy... Uh, the Reedy, Reedy Creek in, Improvement District? No. No, that's right. That was the last one, so... Oh. Uh, all right. We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this to AAC for us and for you. Also, Cashfly for all the, uh, the hosting and all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. It's a beautiful thing. Do you have anything to, uh, to add, anything to tell them here, John? Any parting words of wisdom that might be uh, just the thing they need to make it through the next uh, week without us? Um. Maybe not for them, but for you, Dave. I mean, if you're traveling, all I can say is don't get caught. Made up.